community is trying to position itself as a way to corner the interactive media experience. They're not just a game company anymore. I certainly think they are very competitive and I don't see any other real challenger at the moment. Welcome everyone to the second episode of Conversations in Game Studies, a series of podcast talks with scholars who research video games on an academic level. In this episode, I will be talking to Chris J. Young, who's joining me from Canada, from the University of Toronto. We will be talking mainly about the changing situation of independent video game makers with Chris and the important role that video game engines and platforms such as Unity and Unreal are playing in the transformation of both the hobbyist and the professional game developer realms. And we will hopefully also touch on a few other fun topics. But first, some information about Chris. He's the head of collections and digital scholarship at the University of Toronto Mississauga Library and also a course instructor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information, where he teaches graduate-level courses on critical game studies and digital scholarship. Chris also curates the university's newly acquired and quite astounding Sid Bolton collection, which contains over 14,000 video games, ranging from old Atari titles to modern games, but also hundreds of consoles and other gaming systems, as well as over 5,000 issues of game magazines and hundreds of books and peripherals related to gaming. So Chris is in charge of processing this humongous collection right now. Chris himself has earned a PhD at the University of Toronto. He wrote his doctoral thesis on the transforming Canadian independent video game maker scene. During his research, he repeatedly interviewed game developers over the course of several years, and he followed their careers and the progress of their projects, in addition to participating in video game jams himself during his fieldwork, so Chris is what you may call an insider. Some of Chris's recent publications have focused on developer tools like the Unity Engine and Marketplace, and he has also collaborated with the App Studies Initiative, which is an international network of academic experts doing research into the app ecosystem and its many contentious aspects. So Chris, thank you for joining me all the way from Canada in the morning. It's really nice to have you here. Adam, thank you for having me. Since I have given a fairly basic rundown of the, your CV, now I would ask you on a slightly more personal note, how one becomes a video game scholar in Canada and maybe how widespread this field is because Canada is considered the mecca of video game development, thanks to such legendary studios as Bioware, Eidos Montreal or the Montreal studios of Ubisoft. So how is the field there? Yeah, so the field here is it's quite interesting. So the the video game industry, generally speaking, has sort of risen from a backwater, I guess, of the industry from like 25 years ago to being the sort of third largest uh, workforce um, globally after the US and Japan. Um, and part of this has been because of the US using a number of studios to essentially develop proprietary and uh, intellectual properties franchises. So things like Jurassic Park games, um, Assassin's Creed. So over time, these studios have grown and alongside it, the, the national industry has grown. Adjacent to all of this has been um, a growing game studies community, which since game studies kind of emerged as a sort of active organized discipline about 20 or so years ago, and the Canadian one grew with our main scholarly association, which is the Canadian Game Studies Association, um, as well as uh, various sort of periodicals and places to publish, uh, like our journal Loading, 
So we've been quite active and how I sort of came into all of this about 10 years ago, I had a course with a scholar um, at the University of Toronto, Sarah Grimes, who does research on the wider media spectrum, but is interested in particular on sort of the rights of children when they play games. So I took a course with her on just basic research methods, and we had a, a final assignment that basically said you had to propose a research project, much how like you would for, say, um, applying to a PhD program or for like a research grant. And so um, on the feedback from that assignment, she's like, you should do this. And so I sort of then applied for <laughs> the PhD program there and uh, she became my uh, supervisor. And so 10 years ago, it was a lot of game studies, doctoral students, you could say, were kind of like falling into this spectrum. It's like they were a handful of faculty across the country, you could say, that were doing this. And then alongside me finishing my PhD, there was another sort of cohort of the, the next generation of students. And so now many of those folks have been hired by a number of institutions. And so we have not necessarily game studies programs, but certainly cohorts of games researchers at University of Toronto, Concordia, uh, Waterloo, and um, several other institutions. That sounds like it's actually a very similar trajectory to Central Europe, even though the industry is obviously much bigger in Canada. And maybe on that note, it's a somewhat banal question, but is video gaming somewhat of a national pride in Canada? Does it somehow fit into the Canadian narrative? Because some European nations like the Polish are extremely proud and extremely vocal about their place in the video gaming industry. Does this at all somehow resonate in the broader Canadian narrative about the Canadian economy or identity, for lack of a better word? That's a fantastic question. And I don't have a great answer to it because I think most people in the public consciousness would look at uh, film as being sort of the pride. So Canada is kind of known colloquially as like Hollywood North um, because, you know, Toronto and Vancouver end up being sort of like versions of New York or Chicago or you know, fictitious North American cities. Um, and so people are very aware of that and proud of it. And then you also get to see, you know, these film sets, like you're walking down Toronto and suddenly like the streets close and you find out it's like the next Batman film or something. And people are aware of it, but with games, they're hidden in these little sort of warehouses that used to be like industrial mills and stuff that have been um, transformed. And so people don't know about it per se. Like if you say to people, just about every Assassin's Creed game was either made solely here or partly made here. They'd be like, what? Where was it made? Um, and then you explain that it was in Montreal and then you talk about other things. So I, I think folks who are on the in, you could say, like who know about our game industry, like are well aware, but publicly it's kind of hidden, much like the industry practices and things like that um, as well. I also grew up with series where Vancouver and Montreal would pretty much stand in for everything. I think pretty much everybody knows around the world the Canadian landscape by now. <laughs> so Chris, I would like to talk a bit about your PhD research because it really ties into gaming platforms or gaming engines and marketplaces. You essentially investigated how the independent game maker sphere has evolved. Can you tell me how the last 10, 15 years have transformed the game developer landscape. Let's say to 
how one would imagine on one end having the professional game developers who work for a single studio and on the other end people with very, very limited resources doing a few mods. So how has this been complicated? So right around the time I started my PhD program, I was you know, seeing folks who weren't necessarily professional developers who worked at these you know, household name studios like Ubisoft, uh, Rockstar. I was seeing people who were working in coffee shops, <laughs> uh, making games on a laptop. Um, and this was like around 2010. So a couple of years after the Apple App Store opened, um, Steam was beginning to become more ubiquitous and a number of other sort of online websites and so forth. Um, and so I was looking at this and I was like, you know, these people aren't working in offices, they're not working at studios, they're just making games. And, and this had been sort of going on in the background for um, a while with the Flash animation tool, which you could make games, but you'd make all types of animations and media with it. And so I was really curious about, you know, if they're not working at a studio and they're not participating in the same sort of working conditions and uh, labor practices, what what are they doing? And if they're making their games differently and performing different sorts of practices, is that going to have an impact on the wider industry, perhaps? And so right around 2012, a lot of this was kind of intermixing. And so when I began to do these interviews and recruit participants, it was interesting because I, I did find a couple of these sorts of hobbyist game makers. But for the most part, I was finding folks who were game testers or people who worked on say animations or like very specific aspects of like um, a game so some of them might do things like they spend six months making like a model <laughs> that would go into a big commercial game but that's all they would do and so many of them felt that oh, i'm not really making games i'm making like a fraction of a percent of a game and so they'd start to use all kinds of tools and design the games that basically they would want to make on their spare time. Um, some of them may even do things like learn different skills so that they could get a different job. So playtesters were a prime example of this, where they're sort of playing the same type of game over and over again because it's part of the job. But some of them would have ambitions to become game designers. And so doing these other types of game making activities um, in different sorts of spaces outside of work was like a way for them to participate in the uh, the activity of game making more broadly. And if I remember correctly, you interviewed nine game developers over the course of several years. By the end of your research, what was their achievement, so to speak? Did most of them end up completing their own game or, or did they completely shift careers within video gaming? Or how did most of the people turn out, if you can generalize at all? So I would say my general conversations with them is that they loved <laughs> uh, making games outside of their work mainly because they they could make these little prototypes or these little mini games and they could do it at a game jam over a weekend and then if polish it up a bit more and release it on websites like itch.io and other sorts of places where it's quite easy for you to just you know make your game and publish it and then send it around to friends and colleagues and so forth and so many of them enjoyed that and over the two years like some of them made like half a dozen games um so they wouldn't be along the same sort of scale and production value is say assassin's creed but they they might be along the lines of say uh, super mario brothers or, or something like that like uh, a 2d platformer yeah i'd say many of them enjoyed it and some of them 
uh, were able to use some of those games that they'd make um, as part of like their portfolio for when they would apply to become game designer. One of the my interviewees around interview three moved to Vancouver <laughs> because he got a game design job having been a playtester in Toronto. And so we finished off our interviews uh, remotely over Zoom, um, I believe, at that time. So. And did most of them end up using Unity engine or did they use also different platforms? I would say almost all of them, if they didn't use Unity, they were at least familiar with it and had dabbled with it. There was a variety of tools people were using, but I think at that time, Unity was like the thing everyone had to learn because there are all of these in Toronto. We have like Ubisoft Toronto, the big sort of AAA game studio, but for the most part, it's smaller mobile studios. So you could say independent firms and companies. And so many of them would be using Unity. So if you wanted to get a job with them, you kind of had to to know that and know C Sharp, or at least know the environment in which art assets and audio assets fit into that uh, game engine. It was, to an extent, a leading question because I wanted to talk a bit about Unity, which was the subject of your recent research. In your article in Game Production Studies, you explain how Unity has become almost a sort of quiet monopoly because of the various ways in which they distribute their tools, etc. So can you talk a bit about how Unity has ballooned during the time when you were doing your research, because it pretty much coincided, I think, with the years when you were participating in these game jams. And if I'm correct, you also used Unity yourself. Yeah, it was fascinating. Like I was, you know, wanting just to study like and learn and listen to all of these uh, game developers and game makers and hear more about what they're doing. And then I found that they were all using Unity and I'm like, okay, something's up here. <laughs> like they're all using this one tool. Uh, I mean, not everyone per se, but the vast majority, like I would, I would walk around a game jam venue. So there's like 400 people there and nine out of 10 people were using this, this tool at that time. So 2015, 2016, I'm like, how did this happen? <laughs> how did they, um, you know, as you said, like quietly establish this kind of monopoly um, in Toronto. And, and so I, I did a bit of digging while I was doing my field work and then a bit of research um, after I finished my PhD. I found this to be the case in many environments um, globally. And essentially back in 2009, so right around the time the Apple App Store opened, the Google Play Store opened, so many of the storefronts that people use uh, to access games and other sorts of software um, on their mobile devices, um, Unity made their, their engine free. And some people might be listening and being like, yeah, lots of companies do that. But the history behind game development uh, which I sort of alluded to before, is it's very secretive, it's very proprietary. These game engines were typically made in-house by computer science engineers at these companies who would make it solely for this company or this publisher. And so if you were a studio that was part of a publisher, you might get access to it, but you had to be someone who was making a game for that publisher. And so Unity, back in 2004, when the company founded, wanted to make a tool kind of like akin to Flash that people could use and pay for and make games like professional quality games. And so 2009, they made it free. And at that time, you could basically build a game in this engine and then port it to most of the contemporary game consoles, mobile app stores. And then over time, as new mobile storefronts and other game venues opened, they added those to it. And so jump forward six years <laughs> to 2015 when I'm doing this, they were still the only game company that made the sort of what I would call professional grade 
game tool available, meaning that you could make AAA games, independent games, mobile games, any type of game with it, free for anyone to download. The only caveat was that if you made over $100,000, they'd ask that you gave them a cut, which as one of my interviewees said, that's a great problem to have. <laughs> so come to 2015, they'd basically quietly, gradually developed this almost a complete monopoly. And then all of these other game engine tools realized this um, and made their tools free. So Unreal made theirs free, CryEngine made theirs free. You know, these were ones that were developed by big companies. So Unreal Engine is developed by Epic Games, known for Fortnite, which I'm sure many of your listeners, if they haven't played it, are at least familiar with. So these tools were all free, but at this point they're playing catch up. And so some of them have been able to successfully cut into a slice of the pie, I guess, Unreal being the primary one. But Unity is still quite a dominant force um, as, a, as a game tool globally. I guess, especially in the mobile gaming sector, Unity is pretty much unmatched because you're not really going to make an Unreal game for a cell phone. So Unity, I guess, in your article, you said that it has more than 80% or maybe even more than that coverage there among the newly developed mobile games. Yeah, and I should say too that that stat is provided by Unity themselves, so it's it's difficult to know for sure. But I guess you know they're doing this based on analytics. They've been very good at getting people who are interested in making games, who want to learn more about making games, to pick up their tool, use one of their packages to quickly make a game. So you could make a role playing game pretty quickly by downloading a package. And then if you really enjoy it, you can customize it and do all kinds of things. Whereas Unreal, my sense has been that, as you said, right, it's more of a high graphics professional type engine that they've been gearing more to say teams or studios that maybe want to use a, a much bigger platform that has maybe a higher graphics capability to produce um, their games. So they're both tapping into, you could say like game makers, game developers more broadly, but targeting different segments of that workforce. And um, most of the developers that you have spoken to, maybe even outside of your study, are they actually satisfied with how Unity works? Because it did become this walled garden over time where they have every single tool that you may need. They discourage you from venturing out of their ecosystem. You get the assets, you get the code, you get everything within the Unity platform. Is this huge plus, this matter of convenience, or are the developers themselves, at least the ones that you spoke to, also critical of it sometimes? Does it hinder their job somehow, or are they afraid that it's going to become an even bigger monopoly or catch-all platform? Generally, I think they find it convenient, partly because, like many of these platforms, they want you to do everything in there. They don't want you to have to go use a different tool or a different service to be able to make your game, right? So if you make a game in Unity and you have the ambition to release it on, say, the App Store, to monetize it, to do analytics on it, you can do all that within the tool itself. And they've either acquired companies or they've acquired special licenses to incorporate those different aspects so that people don't have to use something else. At the time, I think people were having to use um, this version control system um, in uh, GitHub to be able to control versions of their game. So say if you work with four or five other people and you're all working on the same version of the game, you know, say like Google Docs or something, um, you want to be able to make sure that no one's 
making a certain change without approval or no one's working on different copies. And so people would use um, GitHub to sort of control these versions and Unity's like, well, we've just made a thing for that. So now you can do it in our tool. And they've gradually done that with other sorts of aspects of like the workflow of making a game um, over time. So do you see these people switching anytime soon or is there anything that even approaches Unity inconvenience or there's pretty much nothing else on the market? There are tons and tons of tools, like tons of game makers, tools, things like that. There's like little ones like Pico 8 and Bitsy and um, and Pixel, which is sort of done independently by a small group of people. So you could easily use those to make smaller type 2D platform games. Um, there's also other ones like software that you can just buy and make a game with it. So like RPG Maker, if you're interested in making role-playing games. So in terms of the variety, if you don't want to use Unity, there are there are tons of options, many of which are free, um, in some cases open source. So you could even develop the tool further yourself um, if you wanted. But I think when you look at, you, you could say the the opportunities that Unity creates, like this sort of pipeline and workflow to cover every single aspect of your game. So being an end-to-end platform from creation to release, there are very few things you could get that could do that. So if I made, say, a Pico 8 game, I'm not able to track analytics unless I use a different tool. Um, I'm not able to necessarily make all of my audio or art assets in that. I might have to use a different tool to do that. Um, So it doesn't mean that these tools aren't great to use. Um, I've used them (laughs) um, and I've made little Um, experimental games with them. But when you're looking at people who might be interested in doing this as a career and thinking about, can I make money doing this, which, you know, is, is at the forefront of many minds when they enter any sort of profession, Unity makes it very easy for people to, to do those types of, you could say, managerial administrative um, aspects to learn more about their player base, how the game can be monetized um, and so forth. Yes, and this monetization is also a huge part of your article when you speak about Unity, that essentially they're giving game makers these amazing tools, but you're automatically opted into their scheme, so to speak, where they're taking a a certain cut from the profits of your game, and it's a great problem to have. But (laughs) can you maybe talk about the ramifications of, of these kinds of systems, because Unreal is doing this. I presume that CryEngine may be doing this at this point. So can you maybe give me any of your thoughts on, on how this system may evolve further or if it has potential for maybe greater exploitation, especially if these platforms end up becoming even bigger monopolies than they are now for game makers? So right now, if you're interested, you could just go and download a copy of Unity. But you have to agree to the end user license agreement. Um, So this includes that clause I mentioned about if you make over a certain amount of money, you'd have to give them a cut. Or they tell you that you have to buy the professional license. So then now you're paying for this professional tool. But the free aspect of the Unity license, it's not like you get everything. You're only getting, you could say, the vanilla flavor um, of it. So you can make games in it, and it is very, very robust. But if you're thinking of making certain kinds of games or you're wanting to implement specific types of features, you've got one of two options. One is you can learn how to do all that stuff and it will take you forever um, on your own. Or you can 
pay for, say, these professional features to get access to it or use um, their asset store, which is probably the, the avenue that most people take, including myself. As an example, when we would make games over a game jam during my uh, field work, um, we'd be working on stuff and then we'd be like, oh, we need this thing, but we don't, we don't have the time to build it. And then, oh, look at that. Someone has made it and put it in the Unity asset store and it's a few dollars. So input your credit card and you now have this asset that will save you time. So these companies, as much as they you know, talk about democratizing game development and give everyone the tools to be a game maker, they need to make money. That's their business model. So there will be ways that they'll be able to get revenue from developers. And so when you you know, enter into that end user license agreement and decide to use their tool, you're acknowledging that at some point down the road, you may be paying money and so forth for all of these things. There's a finite amount of people who can learn to use Unity. And it sounds like it's been people who were interested in making video games even previously, who have used Unity to make works of greater ambition, let's say. So it sounds like it will have to expand and Unity has been expanding. Other engines have been expanding as well. We've seen that in, in TV commercials, whatnot. So can you maybe talk a bit about uh, how this expansion has looked or maybe if you have any personal ideas, prognostics of how Unity may evolve in the future when it's no longer a game engine. Maybe it will drive even your fridge. I don't know. Yeah. So if the article that I published, that would be part one. Um, part two I'm working on with my colleagues at the App Studies Initiative is about this exact question. So they're not just a game company anymore. Their goal, um, or at least how they present themselves, is that they want to be the number one company for real-time, interactive, animated graphics media. So what that means, if you look at it broadly, is that they want to be the thing that people look at if they're wanting some sort of interactive audio-visual um, experience. So they have been, over the last three or four years in particular, but certainly since I finished my interviews, they've been acquiring companies, studios, to basically incorporate features and technologies to support people who are wanting to make products for, say, the film and television industry, the architecture, engineering, and construction industry, the automotive industry. And so some of you might be listening and thinking, like, what has a game engine got to do with the auto industry? Or what has it got to do with construction? And part of it is that when you do a walkthrough of like a, a virtual house, or you look at those ads on these automotive companies where they allow you to go inside the car and interact with all of these things, a lot of those have been made in Unity. Because even though you know there might be engineers using specific tools that design and make these cars, how you promote it to the wider public to sell cars is a whole other aspect. So creating immersive experiences for customers to see what it would be like to drive a car virtually before they buy it, or to see what their future home could look like if they're buying a prospective condominium or house that's being built is very enticing to these industries. And so Unity has been taking what they've done in games and adapting it to all of these other industries. And in terms of where they will go in the future, they want to be the go-to source for all of this. So to take some comparators from other software companies, how many people use a software other than Microsoft Office? 
for how to write in a Word document or Microsoft Excel. Like there are other options up there. There's a lot of them, but do people use them for the most part? When you're wanting to do things like editing photos and so forth at a high level, do people use anything other than Adobe Photoshop, right? So those companies, Adobe and Microsoft, have sort of cornered those segments. And Unity is trying to position itself as a way to corner the interactive media experience. And so they are competing with all of these other companies, but they are at the moment definitely positioning themselves to be the dominant force in that area. And do you think that Unity actually has the resources to achieve this kind of widespread coverage? Because let's say the spheres of influence that Unity is trying to cover are quite expensive and technologically extremely challenging because we're almost in the case of everything, video games, advertising, film. We're talking about multi-million dollar projects at the very least. So do you think it's actually feasible to have a technology that is catch-all or could it be too much to chew off even for such a company as Unity? Yeah, I mean, in terms of scale, Unity is small fish compared to Adobe, Microsoft, um, many of these other big companies. But they have a product that those companies don't have. Historically, and even now, Unity has partnered with Facebook, Microsoft, a number of these other companies on specific projects and features because those companies are like, well, we can't build this and they won't let us buy them. So we'll have to work with them to develop certain features. And so a lot of what we're seeing is the incorporation of, say, Microsoft products into the Unity workflow and vice versa. So whether or not they are the one-stop shop for everything, I mean, is yet to be seen. But it's clear that that is their goal. Now that they're a publicly traded company, they've had the financial resources based on the growth of their stock and company to purchase lots and lots of other you know, companies that have these expertise. One of the biggest ones last year was the company Weta. For people who aren't familiar with it, Weta is the film studio that made all the graphics for like the Lord of the Rings films. And so they're getting all of that film industry experience, technology, and essentially having the ability to incorporate it into the tool. So how that looks is yet to be seen, but they've got the resources, they've made the acquisitions, they're positioning themselves there. Whether or not it turns out that way is another question, but I certainly think they are very competitive and I don't see any other real challenger at the moment. Unreal is certainly there, but they're not necessarily there in the sense that they're breaking into all of these other industries the same way that that Unity is. It sounds like your study will not be a two-parter when it comes to Unity then, that it's going to have many, <laughs> many continuations. And maybe to circle a little bit back to game makers, developers, do you think that the ready availability of such a robust tool has actually improved how people are making games? Or is there maybe too much being made, too much competition? Is it a race to the bottom when you are hiring all these people who have these basic skills now? How do you think Unity has actually rubbed off on the industry in terms of maybe labor conditions or, or working conditions in general? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. And when it comes to, say, the AAA industry, so think of the big publishers like Activision Blizzard, I would say no, but partly because they don't use that tool. They have their own in-house ones. When I started my research, 
mass layoffs, harassment issues were headlines. They are still headlines. So it hasn't it hasn't rubbed off in that way necessarily. But when I look at the people who are just making games, because that's what they love to do, and you know, they're looking to make money if they can, not necessarily to become wealthy, but just so that they can keep making games. Many of them are able to do it under conditions that are ideal for them. So being able to have more of a work-life balance, you know, being at home, being able to have a family, being able to work with who they want, you know, collaborate rather than you're being stuck with a certain team within a segmented part of the studio. So in that sense, Unity alongside many of these other tools have certainly had a positive effect, but we still have these widespread issues where, you know, the vast majority of professional game workers are, and it's had, I would say, negligible effect in that regard. Would it have a positive impact if, say, all these companies suddenly switched to Unity? My answer is probably no, because I think the those issues run quite deep. But when I look at, you know, folks who maybe couldn't have got into the industry 20 years ago, certain underrepresented demographics and communities, it's had a positive effect because you're able to put these tools into the hands of like the everyday person. Doesn't mean that everyone can make a game, but it certainly means anyone could potentially. Good. I think that's a somewhat positive note to end the discussion about Unity on. And I would have one last question, a slightly more whimsical one. So you have dabbled in game making yourself, especially during your field work. Are you still using Unity? And what's your favorite maybe aspect of using these freely available tools? I'd say more recently, my interest has been in some of these other niche tools. What I mentioned before, Pico8 and, and Bitsy. And it's just because Unity, even though it's relatively easy to learn, like they have this learning environment and so forth, there is still a bit of a learning curve there. And I've been quite interested in just things that you could rapidly build something in limited to no time at all. So things like Mario Maker and some of these other sort of closed, limited creative environments have been really good. Um, I've also enjoyed making board and card games as well, like just, you know, taking some paper and a pen. And I think that's sort of, I mean, what I would encourage anyone who's just interested in making games is you don't need to use one of these big tools. You can just get paper and pen and start prototyping ideas. You can also find some of these more, you know, you could say limited creative options like Mario Maker and Little Big Planet and so forth, just to get a sense of what is it like to design and make a game, to get a, a sense of, is this something I really like? And then maybe you take that next step and download Unity or something like that. Yeah, that's great advice. Anybody who has any creative inclination whatsoever, they should definitely do it because I think these creative projects are always great for for your general well-being. Usually a lot of stuff you want to express that comes out in, in these pet projects. So, Chris, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me from Canada in the early morning. I wish you best of luck in the future of your research. Very curious about the second and probably eventually many sequels of your research <laughs> into apps and the Unity platform and also cataloging the new collection. And it would be very interesting to have you back actually to discuss how a university is able to work with such a massive video game collection. Best of luck with that and hope to talk to you later. Thank you so much for having me and um, I'd love to be back.